All right, so we are finishing up a 12-week-long series. Hopefully it hasn't seemed that long to you. But if this is your first Sunday, um, I'll try. I don't, think, I, I don't think you'll feel too left out having missed 11 of the 12, all right? Um, but you can catch up. Uh, the first way is grab some notes back there in the back, at the round table back there, um, and that will give you a list of the topics um, that you missed. And, uh, and then you can go to our website and listen to 11 of them. We're missing one. One, we had a, a recording fail on week four. But other than that, you can catch up on all of them uh, on the website. So the topic has been uh, 12 things every church should know. These are foundational values. And I'm trying as best I can to pick actual foundational values, not just of this local church, but the church, okay? And so the idea is to go, kind of ask the question, what, what would, like if, if the apostles, the first 12 apostles were here telling us what really matters, what, what should be really important to us um, as a group of Christians, what are those things? And I found 12, all right? I didn't come up with all these. Um, I stole these from someone else, and I used them for my own purposes with permission, all right? So today's topic is the fun topic. If you've already, I'm sure you've already looked at the title, and you're like, oh boy, this is going to be sad and depressing. It's not, all right? Suffering and persecution. Woohoo! Everybody cheer. Uh, it's interesting to me. It's like everybody says they don't want to talk about it, but deep down you really do because you have all suffered. That's the one, it's like, well, what's guaranteed in life? And they say death and taxes, right? De- I'd say death, taxes, and suffering, right? It's a guarantee. And so we all have questions. Even this past, I think it was this past week, uh, a prominent Hillsong worship leader and songwriter is questioning his faith over what? This issue. This issue. Struggling and wrestling with why, do, why, why are these, why is life so hard and where is God in all of it, Okay. And so let's start with this summary statement to get us going. It says, Jesus and his original apostles found value in suffering and persecution. There is unity with Jesus in suffering and persecution. Healthy churches find value in resistance, suffering, and persecution. Okay, so what is persecution? Persecution is suffering for the cause of Christ. Suffering is just hardship, okay? And we have both. And what's Interesting to me is the Bible doesn't really draw a lot of distinctions between the two. There are some. Jesus says, you're blessed if you're persecuted for my name's sake. Um, But when you get into the New Testament, you don't see Paul and the apostles who all were suffering and all were persecuted parsing out the difference. You also don't see, the other thing I'm not going to address this morning is where does it come from? Is, Is God doing this to me? Is God allowing this to happen to me? Is this sin or is this the devil, right? Yes. <laughs> That's end of sermon, right? All of those things. It's the other interesting thing when you study this topic in the New Testament. You don't see Paul sitting around the Isle of Patmos, right, wondering, is God, do, what, what do I, you know, what is this all, what, where is this coming from? He, it's more about how we respond to it, right? And so that's where I want to focus. I think it's important to ask questions that God is answering right? God gives you the answers, and you figure out by his answers what the question should be, right? That's how God works. And so if you are obsessed 
over whatever thing you've suffered, and your big question is, is this, was this the devil that did this? Was this someone sinning against me that did this? Did God do this or did God allow this? And you are obsessing over that. You're going to be unsatisfied until you die. Okay? Because God doesn't give easy answers to those questions. What he does say is here, how you, here, here is how you respond. Here's what it means to suffer. Here's what it means and here's what it produces. Okay? So that's, I'm going to focus where God focuses. All right? So don't be mad at me because I don't address some other theological topic, okay? This is where we're going to focus where Scripture does. All right. So, have you ever asked, why is this so hard? <laughs> what, just whatever this is, life, the thing that you're called to do, child rearing, work, getting up in the morning, being a human being, why is this so hard? It seems like I wake up, and from the time I wake up, there is something resisting me. There is something going wrong. Even obeying God, when I'm clear about what he's asking me to do, and I do the right thing, it seems like when I do the right thing, things ought to go well. And sometimes when you do the right thing, it gets worse. I won't even ask for a show of hands because we've all been there. It seems like sometimes God leads you into a harder place than if you had, sometimes I feel like if I just disobeyed God from the beginning, things would be easier. But I know that's not true, right? This is the question I think we all live in, and I think it's common to every human being of every single age, whether you're young or small. The only difference between my hardship and my children's hardship is that theirs is smaller from my perspective, but from, from their perspective, it's just as big as mine, right? It always stays proportional. You have to remember that when you're a parent and your child comes home from school and they're really upset about what Joey said to them, and you say, what did Joey say to you? And it's some silly insult that you think it's, would never bother you in a million years. But when you were that age, it was soul-destroying, right? And so even our children go through really hard things. And for them, they're just as big and just as devastating as the stuff you've been through. It's common to everybody. And we're never told by God or Jesus or Paul or any of his disciples that we would be exempt from this. So the first lesson is, don't be surprised. <laughs> right? Don't be surprised. Suffering is normal. But I think... One of the things that we struggle with, one is I think that we, we that, that idea that we kind of think, well, if I'm a Christian, then there should be no suffering, and it's, it's because we've been infected to some degree by this kind of prosperity gospel kind of thinking, that if I just say the right prayers and do the right things or go to the right church or whatever it is, then all this suffering will be gone. And I believe that God alleviates suffering. I believe in miracles. I believe in healing. I believe in breakthrough. I believe in overcoming. I believe in all of those things. But sometimes God says, no, the best thing for you is to suffer. That is the best thing for you right now. And so he withholds his hand, and he lets you suffer because it's producing something great in you. We'll get to that in a minute, okay? The other reason I think we struggle is that we have a built-in understanding that this is not how it should be. 
And that's right. Because the day is going to come when Jesus returns and all suffering is ended. All persecution is ended. There will be no more tears. There will be no more sickness, no more sadness, no more depression, no more mental illness, no more heart disease, no more cancer, right? None of these things will exist. No more sin at all. And when that happens, there will be no more suffering. And there's something in you, in your, in your built-in DNA creation image of God self that says this is not how it should be. And you're absolutely right. So suffering may, may be normal, but on some level we know that it should not be and we're right. In the meantime, we must endure. And that is the tone of the New Testament's teaching about suffering is for now, for a little while, we must endure. So let's start with Hebrews 12. By the way, don't panic about the length of my notes. I've started including all the scriptures in my notes, which makes them longer, right? So I think you'll all appreciate that, but don't panic. Like, normally it's three pages and it's five. What's going to happen? I'm hungry. I want tacos. Fear not. I will not be demonstrating suffering by making you endure a long sermon. <laughs> Hebrews 12, starting in verse 3. Consider him, being Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons and daughters? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Whoa. Hold on a second. We may share his holiness. Verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So, let's break this down. Verse 3, the founder of our faith, Jesus, the prototype of what a Christian is, endured tremendous suffering and persecution by his own choice. Now, if we are following him and he's the prototype, what can we expect our life to be? Easy breezy. No. Not comfortable. We have not suffered like him, but we can look at him in our suffering, right, and be encouraged that he did it well and that he is in us, right? That goes all the way back to the beginning of this series, Christ in us, the hope of glory. His strength to endure is in you if you are a Christian. 
Verse 7 can also be translated, interestingly enough, in some some, uh, versions of the Bible, will say endure hardship as discipline or for the sake of discipline. I think it's profound. So it doesn't ask the question or answer the question, where is it coming from? Where is this hard thing coming from? It just says, here's how you respond to it. Treat all hardship, all persecution, all difficulty as what? As discipline from your father. That is how you treat it. That's how you act, and that's how you respond. So think about this for a minute. Some of y'all have been through some hard stuff, hard stuff. Stillborn babies, people you love dying unexpectedly, all kinds of mistreatment and abuse and loss. How do you respond to that? You treat it as discipline. Now, what is discipline? You've got to define this carefully. Discipline and punishment are not the same thing. I've said this to you before. This is important when you're raising children, but it's also important in how you respond and understand who God is. Discipline is about training. That's a a physical training athletic word. When you're training for a marathon, you run and you inflict pain on your body and stress on your body so that your muscles will build and your stamina will build so that you can run a marathon. That's training. That's discipline. Punishment is about justice, right? Now, punishment from God is not bad, and he does punish. Wait till we get to the book of Revelation, right? But punishment is about justice. Discipline is about growth. It's about training. And so we don't, for example, punish our children. We're not getting payback for something they did to us. We're training them not to sin, right, to take dominion over their bodies, to have self-control, to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. That's discipline. Punishment is about justice. And who has, who gets to have justice? God and God alone. And where does justice get poured out? It gets poured out on Christ, right? So you don't have to be punished for your sin, but you do need to be disciplined, okay? That's the difference. So take this back to the idea of suffering, persecution, hardship. When pain and hardship comes into my life, I don't take that as punishment. God's mad at me. That is not a sign that God's mad at you. That's a lie of the devil who loves to slip in when something goes sideways in your life and say, God's mad at you. It's a sign. It's evidence. Satan is a great lawyer. He's very convincing. He says, see, I told you, I've been telling you all along, God's mad at you, he doesn't love you, he likes everyone else, and this bad thing that's happened to you is from God, and it's evidence that he's mad at you, he's punishing you, and it is not what this scripture says. What the scripture says is you endure hardship as discipline, as training for you towards what? Verse 10 through 11 says we get to share in his holiness. It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That is what discipline produces. You're being trained by God to be like him. That's amazing. I don't know of any way to become like Jesus without passing through the crucible. I don't. There's no bypassing it. 
if you want to share in that wonderful promise, share in his, how holy is Jesus? Think about it for a minute. He's perfectly holy. There's no mixture in him. There's no sin in him. There's no wrongdoing in him. There's no falsehood in him. There's nothing impure in him at all. And we get to share in that and become like that. And one of the main ways we become like that is through hardship. So that's why Paul can be joyful in his suffering. You ever wondered that? Seems a little, is he for real? Yes. Why? Because he knows what this is getting him. So, summarize Hebrews 12. Because we're following Jesus, we can expect hardship and persecution. We should not be caught unprepared and su- or surprised. And we respond to all hardships in life as training from the hand of our Heavenly Father that will surely produce in us the very holiness of Christ. Okay? Now, I've often heard it said, God won't give you more than you can bear. You ever heard that before? It's awful. If, if you've ever said that to someone that's been suffering, you should go just apologize. Like, seriously, you really sh- you sh- it's worth a phone call, right? God won't give you more than you bear. You can bear. Well, what does that say about me because I can't bear this, right? It's, 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 it's the worst, I think it's on the top of my list of the worst things you can say to somebody who's really suffering is, sweetie, God won't give you more than you can bear. And if you've ever been in a really place of mourning or loss and someone has said that to you, what did you want to do? You wanted to reach across the table and do something horribly violent to them. And it really would have made you feel better, right? You probably didn't do that thing that you imagined yourself doing, but that's what you wanted to do, right? Why? Let's look at what the Bible says because that is not in the Bible, okay? 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 10, our hero Paul, this is him. He says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So Paul says he himself, our hero Paul, next to Jesus, probably the strongest heroic Christian of all time. He says, we suffered beyond our strength, beyond our ability to bear it. Why? so that we would learn not to rely on ourselves, but to rely on God. So it is not true. So if you have been walking around like, boy, that, that thing that happened in my life broke me. I behaved badly. I didn't handle it well. I just snapped in two and fell on the floor in a puddle of mud and I did not handle it well. It went far beyond my ability to cope. And you've been walking around thinking, man, I am a weak person. Welcome to the club. What you learned was that you were a weak person. 
and that you suffered beyond what you could bear, and in the process you learned to depend on God. The suffering talked about in the Bible is always, 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 always more than you can bear. We should just flip that around. God will always give you more than you can bear. If there's a promise, that's it. You will, guaranteed, God will push you to your limit of your ability to handle your life. You are not strong enough. You are not enough. You will never be enough. Only Jesus is. This is part of the point. In order for you to depend on God, you have to face problems that are bigger than you, right? I always say you're never ready for what God's called you to do, ever. If you're ready, you're just late. You took too long. No one's ever ready. No one's ready for what they're called to do. They're never on time. They're never fully prepared, right? And you're never ready or strong enough for the burdens and the weight of life that come on your shoulders. Never. You're not strong enough. The truth is that I can promise you that God will most certainly give you more than you can bear in this life. You are not enough. You're not strong enough. Your faith is too small. The deception of your self-reliance is too great. I got this. No, you don't. Give it a minute. There's, but wait, there's more. <laughs> oh, that's the, I've been there. All right. You're like, oh, this is hard, but I, I'm okay. I'm okay. Just, just give it a minute. There's more. You are not, your faith is too small, too small and your self-reliance is too great. God will bring you to the end of yourself so that you can discover that he alone is all that you need. It will bring you necessarily to the end of yourself and your strength so that you can discover that he really actually is all that you need. And that's not just a theory or a nice thing to put on a bumper sticker, but it really is actually the truth. It was even true of the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians 4 7 through 11, it says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. This is a tough couple of scriptures. What is he saying? Paul is saying that his suffering in his flesh, in his body, is a testimony to the world of the death of Jesus. People are going to look at him and go, that's like what Jesus did. He died. He suffered in his body. And Paul's joy and steadfastness in his suffering is a testimony of the resurrection of Jesus. So even in Paul's physical suffering, okay, his torture in prison, he looks at as a testimony to the world, well, this, this brutal suffering in my body is just a testimony of what Jesus did. And this joy that I have, this overcoming, steadfast, faithful joy, that I have singing in prison is a testimony of the resurrection life of Jesus because how else could you do that? 
without Jesus. Paul's suffering is always about displaying the glory of Christ in his body and in his life. It's not about him. So in Hebrews, we find out that hardship makes us holy like Jesus, and now we see that when we suffer with joy, it's a testimony of what Jesus has done, both in his death and his resurrection. It's not about you. Fundamentally, your hardship is not about you. That's the other trick of the devil, isn't it? Our old friend, self-pity. Have you met him? He's a dear friend of mine. He comes and visits often. And he always has really nice things to say, oh, you poor Ben. It's all about you. If only other people knew how hard it is to be you. Maybe you should tell them. Maybe you should tell lots of people how hard it is to be you in your life. Oh, this hardship is unfair. It's so unfair. You should just sit here. And think about how terrible it is continually. Just, just stare at the wall. There now. Relax. Just think about how unfair it is. Maybe, maybe imagine all the people in your life that don't know how fair it is, don't appreciate how much you're suffering. Picture their faces. Tell them, my son. Tell them how terrible it is in your, in your imagination. And you just sit there, and what are, you do, what are you doing? You're just thinking all about yourself. And it doesn't, it doesn't mean that your suffering is not actual suffering. It's just that our response can't be selfishness. It's all about me. One of the things that pulls you out of that is to go, it's about Jesus. I want to be like Paul, and I want... I want the world to look at not just my pain and say, oh, that's, that's real suffering, but to look at my joy in suffering and say, wow, man, who is this Jesus? Jesus must be alive. Look at that joy coming out of that person. That's the right response. Second Corinthians four sixteen, just a little bit farther down. So Paul says all of this about the affliction being a testimony of Christ, and he says in verse sixteen, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Amen. Those of us over forty, woohoo! I identify. Our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. That's amazing. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, that's this body, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit 
as a guarantee. So much of the good fruit of suffering and persecution will be enjoyed in eternity. That might sound like bad news, but it's not. It's great news. What does Paul say? Verse 17, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. There will be nothing you can compare it to that will make you go, well, eh, this is a great deal. There's no comparison. It's so great and it's so wonderful that there's, no one will say, well, I did have to suffer for this. You're not even going to bring it up. It's going to be so great. Compared to eternity, this affliction you are suffering under is light and momentary. And listen, you might be thinking when you hear that, my affliction is not light and momentary. Paul's speaking from a position of someone who has suffered, I can promise you, more than anyone in this room. He does not say that lightly. He means it in comparison to what you are going to get out of the suffering. This is light and momentary. It's the blink of an eye. At the second coming of Jesus, no one will think anything other than all that I went through in that life was 100% worth it. This always reminds me of Samwise Gamgee and Lord of the Rings. Pardon me, those of you who are not nerds. I did not enjoy those books. I said books, not the movies, the books. He says, after Gandalf dies and is resurrected, comes back to life, the first time Sam sees Gandalf, he says, is everything sad going to come untrue? Can this be? Is everything sad going to come untrue? This is what we will say when we see Jesus again. When he returns, the one who died and has risen again, and we see him again face to face, we will say, oh, Jesus, is everything sad going to come untrue? Can it be? Every sad thing that happened to you, no matter how sad it may be, and I'm, I know what that means. Just take all of your sad things, put them in a big bucket, a big bucket of sadness, and all the sad things you've heard about and seen in the world, all the tragedy, all the injustice, all the wrongdoing, all of it, you put it in a big bucket. And when Jesus comes, his glory will be so great and the joy you will experience will be so unbelievably powerful that all of that sadness will seem as if it is nothing. It will be not even a thought in your mind. And you will look back on your life, however sad it may have been, and you'll say all that has been was sad has been un become untrue because of the glory of his face. That is what you will say. And no one, including all of those that are in hell, will say any different. It's what it means that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. He is Lord over our suffering. And even those who suffer in hell will say, it is right and good that I'm here. We will all bow the knee, and our suffering will do the same. This is our hope, and this is the hope Paul had. Your hope is not that your suffering will end tomorrow. It's not. Because it might not. 
I pray that it does. And I would love to pray for you that it will. Okay? I'm not trying to take away from the kingdom is here. But our true hope is there. Looking at him face to face. So the final answer to the problem of evil, why does a good God allow evil in the world, which is the, the question asked to every apologist by every atheist, is God won't allow evil in the world. Just give him a second. Just give him a minute. Your problem is a lack of patience. You're right. Evil should not exist if there's a good God, and it won't. He is wiping it out as we speak. This is what God is doing. Second Corinthians 1, 3 through 7, Paul says that one of the reasons for their afflictions is so that they can be a comfort to others who are afflicted. Isn't this true? You can try to identify with other people who are going through a hard thing. But if you've not been through anything really hard yourself, it's pretty hard to do. But when you've been through something, when you've kind of gone to the end of yourself, right, the end of your ability and strength to cope, and you've been to that place, maybe it's not the same thing that happened, but you know that feeling, right? The power and the effectiveness of your ability to comfort others is quadrupled. That's what Paul says. He says that part of the reason and the benefit of his affliction and his suffering is so that he could be a comfort to others. And the opposite is actually also true. This is the dark side of that truth in Hebrews 12, 12 to 15. He says, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So just like your suffering, if you respond well to it, will be a comfort to others. If you respond wrongly to your suffering and become bitter, that bitterness is spread in the same way. Think of Job's friends. Why don't you just curse God and die? That's bitterness. That's a bitter, resentful person taking their bitterness and resentment and giving to someone else in their suffering and saying, why don't you be bitter too? And it works. Bitterness is contagious in the same way that joy is contagious. Bitterness is the demonic alternative to comfort. Don't do it. (laughs) You may think you can contain it, but you really can't. You can't fake comfort, and you can't fake not being bitter. It'll come out. So what we need to do here, I believe, is a couple of things. We need to confront that. If you... If you have embraced hopelessness, which I think is kind of another form of self-pity. There's no hope. It's never going to change. That eventually leads to bitterness. This kind of sour thing inside of your heart that's hard and crusty and just 
looking around at the world like, look how terrible it is. Yeah. It's a little bitter monster inside. And you're just collecting evidence all the time of how rotten the world is and how, how not good God is to you. And everything becomes evidence of how you can't trust anybody. I can only trust myself. No one's going to look out for me, so I'm going to look after me. That's bitterness. Life is hard, and it's always going to be hard, so suck it up, buttercup. That's bitterness. So we need to confront that by repenting. And I know it seems maybe counterintuitive or maybe mean for me to say to someone who's having a hard time, you need to repent. (laughs) But what's repentance, right? Think about it for a minute. Repentance is just turning, completely, fully turning away from something. Because in your heart, what you're doing is you're questioning the goodness of God. You're questioning his character. You're, in, in, in essence, questioning his godness. If God is not good, he's not God. He's lying to us because he tells us he's good. And so if God does it, it's good. My awesome father-in-law once said to me, um, I th- what, what's holiness? And one of my kids said, well, God always colors inside the lines. I think they learned that in Sunday school. And he said, well, yeah, it's true. God does always color inside the lines. But if God colors outside the lines, the lines are in the wrong place. <laughs> That's God. And so when things happen to you, and in your heart you say, God must not be good because this bad thing has happened. If God does it, it's good. You may not see how. You may not see how. You may never see how until you see him face to face. And then you might not care anymore. I don't know how that's going to work. I have a suspicion there's not a lot of asking those questions in heaven. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I mean, if you've got a lot of hope in being able to ask, go for it. I'm sure you can ask. I'm just not sure we're going to care. So we need to, that's what I mean when I say you need to repent. You need to repent of questioning the goodness of God, of being like a lawyer who collects data and evidence against God because you've decided he's not good to you. And you repent of that and you confess the truth, which is, God, you're good. And in this I don't see how, but I'm going to believe that. And I'm going to respond to it in the right way by saying, I'm going to receive this, as Paul told us to do, receive it as your discipline, as your training. Lord, would you help me have joy in this? When we were singing this morning, that new song that they were doing, I had this memory of when I was in England for about a year doing ministry to drug addicts over there. And my, it's, I had the most profound worship experience of my life, and I'm still trying to get back to it. There was no smoke. There were no lights. In fact, all the lights were turned up. It was like these fluorescent lights like you get in a hospital in this old house with this weird green rubbery floor that I still can't explain to this day, like 70s green. And it was a room full of about 10 guys who were all drug addicts. And the pastor there was leading worship, just him and his acoustic guitar. It was about 6.30 o'clock in the morning, which is not my best time. I'm in another country, I'm slightly grumpy because I don't like the food and it's early. 
and I don't know anybody. I'm sitting there, and we're having morning devotionals. And these ten broken, messed up, half of them toothless, some of them going through withdrawal and shaking in the corner and sweating, we start singing some song. And they all start singing at the top of their lungs with these broken voices, off-key, there's no, there's, no, there's no bass guitar. Nobody knows what they're doing. They're all inexperienced worshipers, so there's just no, like, clapping, or they don't know what to do with their hands, so they're kind of doing this awkward thing, and, like, hands in the pocket, or what do I do, and what's happening, but they're singing at the top of their lungs, and they're just broken. No ego in the room. There's no pretense. They're just, they have nowhere else to be. They're not qualified to be anywhere else. They just, the night before they're on the street, and now they're sitting there just broken and weak, and they have been at the end of their rope for years, most of them. They have no, what it mean, no idea what it means to be strong and confident like most of us are. And I thought, man, this is worship. This is worship from the pit of despair. And this is what God wants. And it is the most beautiful sound I've ever heard. And so this is how we respond. This is Paul's thing. It's just make it about Jesus. Like, who have I in heaven but you, O Lord, right? What's that, Psalm 73? My heart and my flesh may fail. You are the strength of my, of my life and my portion forevermore. That's how you suffer well. And so this morning I want to encourage us. I'm going to pray. Why don't we stand up and I'm going to pray for you and then we're going to worship together. And I suspect maybe worship is the best thing we can do. I want to encourage you if you are now in a hard place or you have been in a hard place and you're bitter about it, I want to first, before we worship, I want to lead you and ask you to just repent. You're not repenting to an angry God who's mad at you because you're not doing it right. You're repenting from a thing that is robbing you of your joy and your suffering, robbing you of the benefit. I mean, goodness gracious, let's not suffer for no reason, right? Right? Let's get some joy and some benefit out of it. Let's share in the holiness of Christ this morning. So I want to ask you just, I'm going to pray for you, and you just get before God right now and repent of that, repent of your impatience, repent of uh, questioning his goodness, and then we're going to worship together, okay? So let's pray. God, thank you for just giving us Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for just choosing to suffer on the cross for us. And thank you for raising yourself from the grave three days later so that we can not only identify with you in your suffering, but also identify with you in your life. And so would we, we just repent now of shaking our fist at you and accusing you of not being good to us. We turn away from that. God, we repent of our self-pity. We repent of making it all about us. We turn away from it. And God, we ask you now to give us your joy. 
God, whether it's past suffering, current suffering, or the suffering we may endure in the future, God, we embrace it in joy, and we ask you to wring out of it every good thing that you can. God, that we would be trained and disciplined, and that we would share in the holiness of Christ, that we would share in his righteousness in this life. So we ask you to just um, come and fill us with joy right now as we worship. In the name of Jesus, amen.